chapter 32. I want to jump right in this morning, Exodus 32, if you'll turn in your Bibles there. We begin right in verse 1, Exodus 32, verse 1. This is an incredibly important teaching this morning. Yes, Rick, you say that every time. I know, I know. But this truly, theologically, is incredibly important for our comprehension and understanding, and it's very serious. So if you'll follow with me, Exodus 32, verse 1, now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the same people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside from the, they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. And they have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. We have not seen the people of Israel sin once in this entire book, in Shemot, in Exodus. To this point, the word sin has not been applied to them at all in the Exodus story. We've heard their cry from bondage. Certainly, we saw their fear at the Red Sea. God didn't call that sin. There's been some whining, some grumbling, some complaining of hunger and thirst. Understandable, especially at the time. But the Bible doesn't call any of that sin. The Hebrew word for sin, chata'ah, means missing the way. But more significantly, it's an offense against a righteous standard that requires a penalty paid. An offense against a righteous standard requiring a penalty be paid. First time we see the word sin is in Genesis chapter 4, verse 27. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Remember, God is speaking to Cain. And Cain is harboring anger and murderous thoughts in his heart toward his brother Abel. The Lord said, if you do not do well, sin, chata'ah, is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, Cain. But you must master it. Sin wants you, son. Sin's coming for you. You've got to overcome it. By a simple word count, the word sin is used over 700 times in the Bible. 
But in the first 31 chapters of Exodus, the word appears only nine times. Nine times over 31 chapters, never once referring to Israel's behavior. If you look at it, study it out, you note that it's used of Pharaoh once. Pharaoh was said to have sinned. And then Pharaoh says it three times about, my, about himself. I have sinned, he says disingenuously. And then we hear it in two warnings. Exodus 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. It's used in Exodus 23, 33. They, that is the Canaanites, shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. So three times of Pharaoh, a couple of warnings, and then three times the word sin is used in conjunction with or as part of the sin offering that is described to Israel and what they must bring to the Lord, the sin offering. By the way, you might have noticed this, just caught this actually this morning, that when they offer up offerings in verse 6 to the golden calf. They offer burnt offerings and peace offerings, but no sin offerings. There is nothing that can take away sin, save the Lord God himself. So they skip that. But nine times sin is used in 31 chapters, never once calling out Israel as having sinned, but in Exodus 32 33 and 34, across these three chapters, it will describe Israel's actions as sinful 11 times. It just takes off. And by the way, it gets worse. And the Bible is quite clear. They were sinners. The people of Israel were a sinful people. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, tells us, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, Exodus 32, verse 6. Paul said, nor let us act immorally, that is sexually immorally, as some of them did and 20,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And by the way, there is a point where grumbling becomes sin. We're whining and complaining. You know, at the outset, the children of Israel did that. They were thirsty. They cried out. They were hungry. They complained. They grumbled. God says, it's all right. I'll take care of them. I'll feed them. I'll... I'll quench their thirst. I'll take care of their needs. It's after God has provided these things when we continue to grumble that it rolls on into sin. Paul says, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And we are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We can't afford to be messing around with this stuff anymore. Here at the end of the end of the end of the age, last night, my daughter Naomi mentioned the rapture of the church and, and, Honor, and, and said, we're so close to the rapture. And, and Honor Marie said, yeah, yeah well, I, I don't know, we're still here. And Naomi said, no, listen, Honor Marie, we're closer right now than we were when I just said that five seconds ago. That's the right attitude. And we're closer right now than we were just a minute ago when I told you the story. 
The end of the ages has come upon us. What is our attitude about that? While some are getting sleepy, while some are completely sound asleep, while some are walking in pure rejection and rebellion, where are you this morning? Here at the end of the ages, as we're given these warnings, warnings from love, warnings from a heart of compassion, we can't play around with or downplay sin anymore. We've got to stop this. And I'm talking in the church. We've got to embrace what is true and righteous and holy and good and stop saying sin's no big deal, just sweep it under the rug. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So while Israel gives us this picture of a people sinning, hey, we've all jumped into that boat. We've all swam in that pool. We're all part of this deal. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory. And the distance between our best and God's glory is massive. It's, it's beyond comprehension. The distance between my sin and his glory isn't even measurable. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be clear-headed when it comes to sin and salvation because we're in overtime and this is no game. I want to read to you what we read Wednesday night, a passage out of Hebrews chapter 10, where the Hebrew pastor says, verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's only one sacrifice for sin in the person of Jesus. And if we reject or ignore that and just continue on with a lifestyle that says whatever to that divine moment. There's no other offering. There's no other sacrifice. No golden calf will do it for you. He says all there's left, verse 27, is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And adversaries just means those opposed, those standing against. He says, anyone who, who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That was the law. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Deuteronomy 32, 35, and 36. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And some of you might be saying, Rick, where are the jokes? Where are the puns? Where's the enjoyment? There isn't any of that in sin. See, the devil would say sin is enjoyment. Sin is funny. Sin's a, a kick. No, it's not. Sin is devastation. Sin is destruction. Sin is absolute loss. I, I've asked the question um, recently, I think in the last few months, and that is, what are we saved from? We always talk about getting saved. We talk about salvation. The Bible refers to salvation. We preach the gospel, which we believe is our salvation. What are we saved from? Tough times a hard life, bad hair day? What, what are we saved from? Uh, attending the wrong church? A global pandemic? Did you hear the Hebrew pastor? 
He said, some insult the spirit of grace. Some regard as unclean the blood of the covenant. Some trample underfoot the son of God because sin against an eternal God has eternal consequences. My friends, we are saved from the wrath of God. That's what we're saved from. Our sins covered by Jesus so that the wrath of God, which is punishment for all sin, completely deserved, will not fall. That's salvation. We're saved from wrath. Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.9, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That's our salvation. And of course, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, for God has not destined us for wrath. It was never his desire that any of his people, that any of his creation should suffer his wrath. He wants truly all people to be saved. That is the heart of God. But he has put it into our hands. Will we believe? Will we trust in Jesus? Will we be justified by faith in Jesus Christ? Well, this morning in Exodus 32, we come to a complete meltdown of sin. We're going to unpack it now scene by scene. And we start with the opening scene, which I'm calling corruption in the camp. Corruption in the camp. Again, verse 1, now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, bring them to me. And then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to, to Aaron. And he took them from their hand and fashioned with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they arose early and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And they weren't eating burgers and drinking Cokes and playing Pinochle. When they rose up to play, this was just, this is, the, the Bible has a word for it, debauchery. Of people gone wild, dancing, e even nakedly around this calf. I'll show you why I think that in a minute. It had only been a month since Moses went up the mountain. Just a month. And the people say there in verse 1, they saw that Moses delayed. And they grew tired of the delay. One month. Not even 40 days. Moses was up the mountain 40 days, but they had to have time to rebel and to build the calf and to begin their partying. So I'm thinking about a month went by and they're just going, how long are we supposed to wait? Anyone felt that way in the last six months? How long, O oh Lord, are we to wait for all this? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8 says, The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. And take note of this, it's important. Impatience is often a catalyst for sin. So much of the sin that we engage in in our lives comes 
of impatience, which stimulates and agitates temptation and desire. We just, I, I can't wait. I, I just can't wait. Really? No, I, 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 I got to do this now. And Jude wrote, verse 11, Woe to them, for they've gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. We'll learn about the error of Balaam. And perished in the rebellion of Korah. We'll learn about the rebellion of Korah. But it's that phrase, rushing headlong. How often do people rush headlong into sin because we just can't wait? I know God says there's a good thing over here, but I got to get it now, my way. And so sin comes. And they, in this singular event, violated the first three commandments. Commandment number one, Exodus chapter 20, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. What do they say? Come, make us gods. Now your Bible may say, make us a God, and that would be incorrect as a translation. The Hebrew for God is Elohim. The Hebrew for God, so it's Elohim, which is the plural form, which is three or more. There's El, I've told you before, El is one God, Elah is, is two and Elohim is always at least three, which makes sense for our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And even back in the Hebrew Scriptures, with the very naming of Elohim in Genesis chapter 1, we see the triune God. But understand that every time Elohim is used of Yahweh, of our God, the singular verb is used with the plural Elohim. Like Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Then God, plural, Elohim, said, singular, let there be light. They said in the singular. So it speaks of a singular being, though he is called Elohim. That's how God is referred to in the Hebrew Scriptures. But in verse 1 of chapter 32, it's Elohim with the plural verb. Make us gods who will go before us, and go before us is in the plural. Therefore, Elohim must be translated gods. Therefore, the people are saying, make us gods that will go before us. And the Lord had said very clearly, you shall have no other gods before me. Not one, not many, none. Second violation. The people say also in verse one, make us, make us gods. The second commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse four, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Psalm 106, referring back to this, verse 19 says, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot their God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. They exchanged their glory. Wait, 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 wait a minute. What was their glory? Their glory was God himself. Their glory was Yahweh present with them because his glory is glory. There is no other. The true glory that kabod in the Hebrew, that weight of, of glory, it all belongs to God. It is of his very nature. His glory is glory. And quoting Psalm 106, which says they exchanged their glory, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1.22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image 
in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Their glory was incorruptible God who said you shall not make for yourselves an idol because if you make something else to replace or stand before him, you'll lose the glory. You exchange that glory. And Jude said, verse 24, he is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. His glory is glory. It is remarkable how quickly we set that aside and rush headlong into sin. And when we do that, we're exchanging glory. We're saying, you know, I, I get it. I mean, I was at worship service Sunday, and, and, and it was great, and it was glorious and all that. But, but God's glory, it, that's, I don't know, it's such a, a difficult thing to get my, my hands on and my fingers around. So i got to do this other thing. And we make an exchange. And in this case, they exchanged the glorious presence of God for a cow. It's stunning. It's unbelievable if it wasn't so common. This is what I call mad cow disease. So there's your joke for the day. This is the disease of sin. It is when I exchange who he is for what I want. I don't care what this says. It's not what I want to do. I stand opposed because it's not my thing. But perhaps the most egregious sin of all was the violation of the third commandment. Note what Aaron says in verse 5. Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Aaron names the golden calf Yahweh. And God said in the third command, Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. To ascribe the glorious name of God to a calf made of gold was as much vanity as, as has ever been pronounced in the world. So with their first deep dive into sin as a people, they snubbed and they spurned the love of God. And I'm not talking about the love of God for us. I'm talking about our love for him, their love for him. Remember Jesus said with the commandments, love God and love people breaks the whole thing down. And the first half of the commandments is all about loving God. And what did they violate? The first half of the commandments. Forget about love for each other. And that'll just get messier and messier. But they go right in to spurn the Lord. Now with Aaron here, you're thinking, Aaron, what are you doing? Aaron, I mean, you, you've been with Moses from the start. Aaron met Moses in the wilderness after the event at the burning bush and went with him back to Egypt and saw the wonders and the miracles, as all the people did, but he was called up. You realize that just before this, granted it's been an entire month, but just before this, Aaron was in the company of guys partway up on the mountain as they looked up and saw the feet of God on sapphire pavement. Aaron, what are you thinking? Now, you could read this and say, well, maybe Aaron was just trying to keep the peace, trying to hold them together until Moses got back. Maybe he just wanted to keep Yahweh's name in play. That's what it is. 
well, they want to go in cap. But if I call it Yahweh, well, then maybe that'll keep us on the right focus. Churches do that all the time. We'll say we're doing this in the name of Jesus, though it violates what Jesus says. Maybe Aaron was just under a lot of pressure. <laughs> no doubt he was under pressure. Mottier even calls him criminally feeble. Criminally feeble. Has that ever described you? Criminally feeble. When you can't say no to sin because the sociocultural pressure around you is just too great. Lord, I'm sorry, but they were all, and I was just, and how could I not? Criminally feeble. Note that in verse 1, it says the people assembled about Aaron. Literally, the phrase is the people gathered against him. Gathered against. Sarna, in his commentary, says it always carries a menacing nuance. How different the high priest of Israel, when the people gathered against him, and the high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, when the people gathered against him. And Aaron caved. Why did Aaron cave? Why did it take less than 40 days for the entire leadership of Israel? Because remember, it was Aaron and her and Aaron's sons and 70 elders all together. They all are complicit in this. It takes less than 40 days for their leadership to completely collapse. Why? Very simply, Aaron feared man. Moses feared the Lord. The fear of the Lord was in Moses. The fear of man was in Aaron. Proverbs 1.7 tells us all the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 29.25 says the fear of man brings a snare. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. One of the most difficult but fundamental principles of ministry that I learned many years ago was that I am not here to please you. I'm here to please God. Now prayerfully in pleasing God, that will be pleasing to you. And in pleasing God, that compels me to love you as it should compel you to love me as we love each other. But it's got to be first and foremost because we are seeking his good pleasure, not ours. Seek him and it's going to go right. Fear man. Fear woman. Fear friends or neighbors or relatives and it's going to go badly. The fear and favor of the Lord God must be our highest value and only then can we stand when others gather against us. As Paul put it, and I, I like this phrase, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And some of you sisters are going, act like men? Yeah. I would add, act like men are supposed to act. <laughs> But you know what happened here? While Moses receives the commandments, Aaron has a cow. <laughs> fear of God, fear of man. Scene change. Repentance 
on the rise. And I'm not talking about repentance rising up. I'm talking about repentance on the rise of Mount Sinai, up on the mount. Verse 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Go down at once. For your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I find it interesting that the Lord says your people. <laughs> and see, my people, your people who you brought up have corrupted themselves. That word corrupted is shechet, and it means ruined, wasted, destroyed. They're destroying themselves down there. And they have quickly turned aside, God says, from the way which I commanded them. And they have made, can you imagine how heartbreaking this was for God? I mean, if it was you, thankfully it wasn't. If it was me, if we can get into the emotional state of our holy God, and I know that's a human way to describe the divine, but if I could imagine for a moment God who saved this people, delivered this people, and brought the commandments starting out with, hey, love me. Not because he needs it, but because they needed it to love him. Love me. Uh, don't take my name in vain. Don't make any other gods. Let's do this together. I'm your God. And then love each other, as he describes in the commandments. And now they're standing in total, in-your-face rebellion. That's got to have hurt. They quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They've made for themselves a molten calf, have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Unbelievable. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. That is stubborn, hard-hearted, stiff-necked. You'll hear that phrase used of Israel a lot. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Wait a minute. Was Yahweh really ready to destroy the people? After all that he had done? Is that what he's saying to Moses? That he's going he's gonna to destroy Israel and just start all over with Moses? Go find him a nice little shepherd girl and we'll just start from the beginning. Wipe out all of these people. They deserved it. And what they did and in their response to his divine holiness, they absolutely deserved for him to wipe them out then and there. I would have. I would have been done. See ya, wouldn't want to be ya. And I'd move on to something else. They deserved it. They were already destroying themselves. Verse 11, then Moses entreated the Lord his God. This is amazing. Oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Moses just nails it here. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Well, Moses, if you're going to throw my word up in my face. So the Lord changed 
his mind, verse 14, about the harm which he said he would do to this people. And this is fascinating. On the surface, if you just do a cursory read of this, it, it appears as though God is hot and Moses is cool. God's losing it and Moses is holding it together. That God is ready to rumble and Moses is calling for calm. It looks like it takes Moses to talk Yahweh down and help him to change his mind. And by the way, to make it a little more intense, the phrase changed his mind is yenachem. Yenachem is used throughout the Hebrew scriptures and it is translated with a word that you know well, repented. God repented. If you're reading in a King James translation or perhaps even the New King James, that, that's what it reads. And the Lord repented. And I think, well, hang on a minute. In, in the same narrative, in the same story, just a, a little ways down the line, Numbers 23, 19, tells us God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Yenahim, same word. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not make good? What's going on here? Did God repent? Yenahim also means Moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. Again, Psalm 106, verse 43 says, many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry and he remembered his covenant. How can he repent of his word when it was his word he gave in the first place? He remembered his covenant for their sake, and listen, the word here, listen, relented, and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. The word relent is yenachem. It's the same word. So what can be translated repent can also be translated relent can also be translated moved with compassion. How do we know how to apply it? Well, when it's talking about you and me, we repent. When it's talking about God, who does not repent, he relents. He is moved with compassion for his people. And always with divine intentionality. Listen, if you're not getting this, if you're still going, well, yeah, but it's still the same word. Okay, get this. Who put Moses in position to intercede for Israel in the first place? God did. Who has foreknowledge of everything that's going to happen? God does. Who knew what Moses was going to do when God said, I'm going to destroy the people? God did. So what is God doing saying, I'm going to destroy the people when he knows Moses is going to pray for the people, remind him of the covenant, and he's going to relent of his statement that he was going to destroy them? What's going on here? God is testing Moses. And I don't mean testing like playing games. I mean proving God's not testing Moses so that God can be satisfied that Moses is the right guy. He already called him to be the deliverer. He's testing Moses for Moses' sake. He is proving Moses to Moses. He is draw This is amazing to me. He's drawing out of Moses the love Moses really has for his own people so Moses can see how much he cares about this people. So Moses can vividly understand how much these people matter 
to him, not only to God, but to him, to Moses. So God sets up this scenario where Moses has to stand in the gap or in the breach, as the Bible will say. Will he stand for the will of God and for God's people? And God does this so Moses can answer, yes, I will. And he did the same thing with Abraham. Why would God call Abraham to go up the mount and sacrifice his son, his only son whom he loved, Isaac? Because God was proving to Abraham that Abraham would trust God. It wasn't for God's purposes. God knew. But Abraham didn't know. Abraham didn't know the quality of his faith until he went all the way through the process and was willing to sacrifice Isaac, and then God says, now we see. And he's doing the same thing here with Moses. Psalm 106, again, verse 23 says, therefore, he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them, and there's something else going on here as well. Not only is God showing to Moses, Moses' heart for the people, proving Moses. But God is painting a picture here of one who delays or sways or stands to turn God from his wrath. A deliverer, if you will. Romans 8, 27 says, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God's will is always in play, always being worked out. God knew what Moses would do, but Mo needed to know that he was Israel's intercessor. And being Israel's intercessor, Moses stood up right here in our story as a picture in type of Jesus Christ who turns away the wrath of God, who by his sacrifice saves us from the wrath. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony at the proper time. And that ransom paid, my friends, turns the wrath of God away from you, away from me, when we sin. We needed one to stand in the breach between, again, our great sin and his absolute holiness, and Jesus did that. 1 John 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Please, John says, Paul says, Peter says, Jesus said, the New Testament, the Bible says, please, don't sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous who stands in the gap who stands in the breach that is torn because of our sin so that there is only one way to be saved when Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father but through me it's not a statement of arrogance it's not him just saying hey you got to be a Christian it's him saying there is no other way I'm the only one who did this I'm the only one who turned away the wrath no golden calf, no religion, no church, no other faith can save a person but Jesus Christ. Scene change. Scene change. Chaos and chastening in the camp. So we started in the camp, back up with Moses and God. Now we go back down to the camp. Verse 15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides 
They were written on one side and the other. In other words, there was no room to add anything. That was it. And the tablets were God's work. The writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. I love Joshua. You know what Joshua's doing while Moses delays? He's just hanging. You know, he's there on the mountainside just waiting for Moses to come back. I don't know what he was doing. Did he bring a Nintendo Switch to play? I don't know. What's going on with Joshua? He's waiting. We will later see that every time Moses goes into the tabernacle, Joshua stays right there. And then when Moses goes back into the camp, Joshua stays right at the tabernacle. He just wanted wanted to be as close to God as possible. So Moses comes down and runs into Joshua, Yehoshua, whose name is the same as Yeshua, Jesus. But he heard the sound of the people as they shouted. He said, there's a sound of war in the camp. And Moses said, it's not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Remember, at this point, Moses hadn't seen. God told him what was going on. Moses hadn't seen it for himself. A little easier to stand in the gap when he didn't know what was really going on, when he didn't actually see it with his eyes. Now he sees, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He's the first one to break the Ten Commandments. No, here's the irony. The people had already broken the commandments before Moses even came back down. They were already in violation. The commandments hadn't even been delivered yet. And he took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Gold dust Kool-Aid. And Moses was furious. His anger burned, the Bible says. His reaction is intense. And he was spot on in his anger. This is a righteous anger. Brothers and sisters, just because you pray for someone in their sin doesn't mean you have to be okay with their sin. Just because you recognize someone is in a moral failing doesn't mean you go, ah, but we'll just, it's, ah, it's okay. I prayed for you. To be angry with sin. When was the last time you were angry with sin? I'm not talking about punishing your kids because they didn't obey. When was the last time a friend of yours sinned and you were were just angry about it? And if that has happened to you, no doubt your friend said, what are you getting all upset about? Oh, I don't know, maybe your eternal state. Moses is is furious. And talk about a meltdown. I mean, the picture of melting down this calf, it's an intense one, what takes on. This is what sin does. Sin in a complete meltdown. Sin looks like this. It looks like this beautiful, this beautiful amulet, this beautiful structure, this, this beautiful craftsmanship. And then it melts down and ends up ground out and polluting the otherwise pure mountain stream from which we drink. The word for water here, that he scattered it over the surface of the water, it's mayim in the plural form. It's water in the plural, waters, and it, in, it means a flowing brook. 
means a flowing stream. He's sprinkling out all the dust of this golden idol into the stream. It's ruining the stream. The water's coming down. They collect it up, and he makes them drink of that. Moses was a powerful dude. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 21 says, I took your sinful thing, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust, and I threw it into the brook that came down from the mountain. Think about that picture. This is sin. It looks so good. And so even just, I mean, I can even worship there. And then it melts down and ends up polluting and silting the water. Jesus said, he who believes in me, John 3, 737, 738, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And but this, he spoke of his spirit. What I'm saying to you here is that sin, and I'm talking to believers, sin corrupts the flow of the Holy Spirit in my life. When a follower of Jesus sins, we corrupt the living water. Not, not that, don't get me wrong, not that the spirit is corruptible. The spirit of the living God is pure and perfect and absolutely not corruptible. But my ability to swallow the living water, to hear the Lord, to understand, to comprehend, to move in the spirit, my ability to do so can be slowed by the silt of my sin. That as I sin, I pollute what otherwise should be a pure signal, if you will, from the Lord. I should be able to hear. I should know. I should be able to move in the truth when the spirit of truth lives within me. But when I am sinning, I got all this gold dust that messes up my ability to take it in. Because the mindset on the flesh is death. Romans 8, 6. The mindset on the spirit, that's life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 21. So Moses said to Aaron, and by the way, up to verse 20, what we get here, what happens in verse 20, I, I think is part of the larger picture. And now we get some more specifics because something happens immediately that I think probably happened before the idol could be melted down and burned up and all that. It's all a narrative, and, he, and he's explaining the story to us. In verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin, and there it is, such great sin upon them? Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know that the people yourself, they are prone to evil first thing he does is the first thing Adam did, blame the other person. And Eve blamed the serpent. And the serpent turned around to blame and there was no one else there. And here we have Aaron. Well, you know the people, they're just a bunch of sinners. It's their fault. What are you, what are you so upset about, he says. And again, that's what, how people will often respond if you show any negative emotion toward their sin. <laughs> what are you so upset about? We've all sinned and fallen short, right? We all blow it sometimes, no big deal. You know the deal here. For they said to me, verse 23, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We didn't know what happened to you, Moses. We were doing the best that we could. I said to them, 
Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> that has got to be the most imbecilic excuse for sin in the history of the world. I mean, look at what Aaron's doing here. Out came this calf. He's trying to shift the, uh, and avoid the blame completely. He's acting like, I mean, note this. He's acting like collecting up all their earrings, which were idolatrous. Okay, the wearing of earrings, not now, but then. I know you're all going. It was idolatry. And the fact that the sons and the wives and the daughters, they were all wearing these earrings, they already were playing. They were already heading down this road. And, and Aaron now says, well, I told them to give me all the... It's almost like he's saying, I was trying to make things right. I collected all their idolatrous earrings and I threw them into the fire. We were going to be done with this. But then this calf came out. What was I to do? <laughs> Moron. Sorry, that was me. That was just me. This amazing thing happened. Aaron. Aaron, the criminally feeble sinfully complicit and this rebellion wasn't over verse 25 now when Moses saw that the people were note this out of control for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said whoever is for the Lord come to me and all the sons of Levi gathered together to him a rebellious riotous rage is swelling in the camp this is why I said before, I think with the, the melting down of the calf and the pouring into the water, making them drink that, I think that that perhaps happened after because there, there's a rage going on. Or should I say there's a rave going on. People are dancing and partying. Moses comes down. What are you doing? Smashes the stone. People look up, kind of stop for a minute. Whoa, oh, dude, he's here. Ah, so What? And there's rebellion that's now swelling up. Out of control can also translate in the Hebrew naked. Or unrestrained. Or let loose. You might say, well, which one is it? Were they naked, unrestrained, and let, or, or let loose? Yes. It was chaos in the camp. And the response to this chaos, this swelling anger was a serious chastening as Moses calls the sons of Levi, actually calls anyone to his side who will come, and the sons of Levi do. In verse 27, he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And note that because Moses is not acting out of his own anger. He's acting out of the inspiration of the spirit of the living God. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man and his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. And people read that and say, wow, that's just so harsh and brutal. Their sin was harsh and brutal. Their sin deserved that and so much more. This is where we do not understand what sin really is. When we can even say that it was, that was just a heavy-handed, mean-spirited God to do something like that. What do you do with a rabid dog? You put it down. These people were dancing wildly, nakedly. They were out of control. 
And the question here is not why. Why did they kill so many Israelites? The question is why did they kill so few? Remember there were 603 plus thousand men numbered in Israel. Not including all the women and children. So we've estimated anywhere from three to four million people and 3,000 were killed? That's all? Why didn't they kill more? Why wasn't it more of a bloodbath than that? And I suggest to you it was 3,000 who died because these were the ones who fought back. These were the rebellious entrenched. These were grabbing their own swords and coming back at it and fighting and saying, no, we're not going to follow... And so the Levites, on the side of Moses, moved through the camp, and it put down this rebellion, and this is why Levi was given the priesthood. Think about years and years after that. People tend to think of pastors and priests and rabbis as more passive men, you know. They're the ones, if, if we're at war, they'll be the chaplain. You know, they're, not, they're not the fighter. They're, they're not the ones that are going to draw the sword. But it was because Levi drew the sword that Levi became the priestly tribe. You know, before that, it would have been the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. Up to that point. Remember when, when Moses called for the offerings before he went up for the, the fifth time on the mountain? He called for the offerings, the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And who did he call on to help him prepare those offerings? It was the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. Those were going to be the priests. That was God's priestly intention to have a nation of priests and all the firstborn sons would actually serve at the tabernacle or later the temple. They would be the priests until this. And in this rebellion, we see the sons of Levi immediately rush to the side, not of Moses, but of the Lord. And it's fascinating to me because Levi for four generations had been sitting under a curse. Listen to it. Genesis 49, verse 5. Shimon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence, old Jacob said. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let my glory not be united with their assembly because in anger they slew men and in their self-will they lamed oxen Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. And he refers to, Jacob refers to the incident at Shechem. If you Bible students remember, when their sister Dinah was raped by a young man named Shechem, and Shimon and Levi went through, and they killed the men of Shechem with the sword. This is such an amazing picture. Levi now sides with God and what was a curse now turns into a blessing. The curse that ended with, I will scatter them in Israel. And they will be scattered in Israel as priests. The curse becomes a blessing. Deuteronomy 33 verse 9, Levi said of his father and his mother, well, I did not consider them. And he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons. For they observed your word and kept your covenant. That means Levi was indiscriminate in following the Lord here on this day. In strapping the sword on the side and going through the camp, it didn't matter if they were even sons or brothers or relatives. Levi stood for the Lord when Levi drew the sword. You could say what they did was they traded one sword for another. 
the sword of the word of God. There was the sword of their violence at Shechem, which was the violence of their own intent. This violence was righteous. This slaying was of divine intent. And Deuteronomy 33, verse 10 says of Levi, they shall teach your ordinances to Jacob, your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. They traded one sword for another. And there's always a clear choice. Let this story get to you. There's always a clear choice. Sin produces death. Rebellion arouses wrath. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in Romans 5, verse 20, the law came in so the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the choice. On the day the law was given, 3,000 people died. On the day the church was inaugurated, 3,000 people were saved. That's always been God's intent. Salvation. For all who will believe. Acts chapter 2 verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And the Bible is specific. What a contrast. Rebellion bringing death. Faith bringing salvation. And the Lord, Acts 2.47 tells us, was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Saved from what? The wrath of God which is a very real thing where sin is concerned. How are you numbered? Are you numbered among the saved or are you numbered among the fallen? Would you stand like Levi or would you fall like even some of their own sons? Verse 29, then Moses said, dedicate yourselves today to the Lord for every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. Man, that sounds familiar. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household and what Jesus was talking about the sword that he brought it wasn't the sword of Peter that cut off the ear of the high priest's servant the sword he's talking about is the word of God the dividing word that divides those who receive Jesus from those who reject Jesus which is why even in a family there can be division if you receive the word of God if you will stand on the truth of God and have faith in Jesus Christ who is the word it will divide you out, even from the members of your own household. And I don't say that to upset anybody. I say it by way of the truth and to understand the Lord knows. See, that's amazing. He knows with deep compassion. He knows how hard it is for you if you're divided in your own family. And by the way, I don't know of a family that's not. I don't know of a family where there's not some division of Believer versus non-believer and the difficulty that that creates. It's all because of the sword of the word of God. Verse 30. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin. And now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement 
for your sin. And that word perhaps is spot on. Moses was humble, but uncertain. I'm going to go back up. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I'll do my best. How different would that ascent of Moses be from the ascent of Jesus? Who Hebrews 9.12 tells us through his own blood entered the holy place once and for all having obtained eternal redemption. When Jesus ascended and came back before the Father in heaven, there wasn't a moment of hesitation. There wasn't uncertainty. There was absolute confidence because to tell us die, it is finished. Because he did everything that was necessary. The sacrifice had been paid. Jesus enters heaven with the full confidence of his own sacrifice bringing our salvation. Moses goes up, not sure. Final scene. Final scene, what I would call supplication at the summit. And note this, for the sixth time now, Moses ascends the mountain to plead forgiveness, and his prayer is extreme. Verse 31, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. If not, please Blot me out from your book which you have written. Who do you love that much? Who do you love so much that you would take their place, that you would trade out your salvation for theirs? And I know there are some of you who would say, for my son, I would offer that. For my dearest friend, I, I, I would do that. I think. Romans 9, verse 2, the Apostle Paul, like Moses, says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul says, if that would do it, I would do it. If my cursing could be their blessing, I would do that. But it's not up to Paul. It's not up to even Moses. Brothers and sisters, it's not up to you and it's not up to me to sacrifice self to try to save someone. First of all, it doesn't work. Your blood's not that pure. And people do this. What do you mean? People will sacrifice their own salvation for another. How can I believe when my own sister won't believe? How can I believe when my father, when my mother won't believe? I just can't do it. Well, then you're putting yourself in the place of Moses if you will not forgive their sin, blot me out from the book which you have written. Guess what? Verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Your rejecting my salvation won't save anybody. It never has. It never will. There's only one. John 15, 13, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends and that's what Jesus did. And you could say Jesus did have his life blotted out. Though not eternally because you can't keep a perfect man down. And he rose from the dead and he crushed the bars of sin and death. And through doing that, bought, purchased eternal salvation for anyone who believes. That's all he asks us to do now. Believe. 
receive what I have done for you. Don't go sacrificing yourself. It's not going to work. You just trust me. You just follow me. But God does blot out. By the way, verse 33 is the first time we see this book mentioned in the Bible. And it's an eternal statement. This book is an eternal book. It's the book of life. And the next time we see this book mentioned is in a prophetic psalm of the suffering Christ. It's in Psalm 69. And speaking of those who reject him, Jesus says, Psalm 69, verse 28, may they be blotted out of the book of life and may they not be recorded with the righteous. Now, listen, stick with me on this. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, speaking of Israel, says, there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, and at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. It's the book of life. Speaking of a time yet future when, as Zechariah says, a third of Israel will pass through the fire and be saved, their names recorded in the book of life. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed with white garments, and I will not erase his book from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. When we studied that, I said, you know, someone's going to ask, wait, can, can a name be blotted out of the book of life? And in the Revelation study, I said, that's not the focus of what he's saying. He's saying, I will not erase his name from the book of life. Praise the Lord. That's a good thing. But it still leaves that question hanging in the air. Can a name be blotted out of the book of life? Apparently. I'm going to give you Rick's take on this. This is not coming from commentaries or scholars or theologians. This is just me. So <laughs> there's your grain of salt. God is all about life. He wants life for everyone. That's why you're here. That's why you breathe. God is all about life. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 10, 10. God is all for life. He is all about life. He is pro-life. And when all of us were born, when every person throughout history was born, our names were written in the book of life. Psalm 139. It says, all my days were written in your book before one of them came to be. Everybody, so the book of life, big book, all these names, you're born, name written down. But listen, John 3, verse 5, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, physical birth, and the spirit, spiritual birth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so what I'm saying to you, Rick's opinion, is for a name to remain in the book of life, we must repent. We must be born again. We must turn from sin to God by faith in Jesus because as Peter wrote, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The, the people were wondering about the delay of Moses on the mountain. That's exactly where the world's at right now. Wondering about the delay of the Lord. So mockers come with their mocking. 
hasn't come back, nothing's changed, it's a long delay. The Lord's delay is the Lord's patience, which is the Lord's desire for life for every person, and all we've got to do is repent. But we must repent. And in the book of Revelation, I will not erase your name from the book of life. Why? Because your name is sealed in the book of life because you've been born again. Indelible ink. And in the book of Revelation, we hear the full name of the book of life, finally, as applied to those who are saved for all eternity. It's called the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life. Revelation 13, verse 8 says, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship the beast whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, this book of life, the Lamb's book of life, has the names of everybody, not only who's born into the world, but is born again, or would be born again, God knew. Romans 8, 29 tells us, by his foreknowledge, he knew. In Revelation 17, verse 8, the book of life is mentioned again. Revelation chapter 20 which you can turn there or just listen. You've heard this recently, Bridge Fellowship, but Revelation 20, verse 12 says, so clearly I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And by the way, these are the dead who died in rebellion. We're not among the dead who died in rebellion if we're among those who live by faith. So the raptured church and the dead in Christ who rise 1 Thessalonians 4, all are already alive in Christ. We're not the dead who were raised up at this time. In Revelation 20, on what the world thinks of as judgment day, these are the dead who died outside of Christ, who died in rebellion. And they're standing before the throne, and books, plural, were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in, note this, the books plural, according to their deeds. Imagine the picture. God opens up all the books of deeds, the books of things that all that everyone ever did. For anyone who's ever said, I'm a good enough person, okay, let's check it out. We've got a, we've got a record of that. We can see what you did, good and bad. And let's check that out in the books of deeds because, see, your name's not written in the book of life. Therefore, we have to look in these books and you can try and make your case, but the thing is, down in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's an eternal punishment. And some are disagreeing with that in the church today, disagreeing that there's an eternal hell. We don't like the sound of it. We don't, you know, man, I just, I just prefer not to, couldn't it just be a short-term thing? How about purgatory? You know what the problem with purgatory is? With going in for a short time? It's not long enough to cover for your sin. Because all sin is sin against an eternal God. When, do we understand this? And this is why this chapter is so important for us and why sin is so deeply depraved and ugly. Sin is eternal. It's not a temporary thing. We do it, we forget about it. When you sin against an eternal God, that sin is eternal and must be eternally accounted for. So there's no such thing as a purgatory where you can just go part-time and kind of make up for it. No. Purgatory denies the blood of Jesus, which is perfect. The blood of Jesus that will save you forever. 
And Revelation 21, verse 27 says, of New Jerusalem, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. And then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. We don't know exactly how he smote them. Some think it was the gold dust Kool-Aid. You know, that it actually caused painful infections in, in the intestines. And, and so that was the smiting that took place. Others point to the sword of Levi and go, no, it was, it was the, the 3,000 that were slain that day. I suspect that this is something far more severe that the Bible doesn't even tell us about because we don't need to know. But there was a severe punishment that followed this incident, and the punishment was as in teaching the people how serious and severe sin truly is. In this chapter, sin is referred to exactly six times. Note also that it leads to the sixth ascent of Moses. This time to plead for their forgiveness, and appropriately so, because six is the number of mortal man. Six times sin is called out. The sixth time Moses goes up and pleads, cries out for forgiveness. But even Moses' plea for the people is remarkably similar to another cry when, when Moses goes up and says, please forgive them. Does that not ring true? With Luke 23, verse 34, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the difference Moses couldn't die for the people. Jesus could. And Jesus did. And we so desperately need his forgiveness for our sin. And brothers and sisters, he offers it to you right now to be free and clear and cleansed for all eternity by trusting in him because his blood is eternally perfect, eternally pure. Would you all stand up with me? It's a longer teaching than usual on a Sunday morning, and I don't apologize. Because Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Anyone uh, not agree with that this morning? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, not an atonement, a propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, this is amazing, he passed over the sins previously committed. That is, he held off the eternal punishment that their sin that day and every day since deserved, he held off on that. He said, you keep sacrificing the calves and the, and the goats and the rams and the bulls. You, you keep doing that. I'm going to hold back my wrath 
until Jesus comes, until it can be paid for. He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that is your salvation. That is my salvation today, faith in Jesus. And and I hear this stuff, and I know I've been there. When, When we're talking about sin, and my sin begins to come up, and the stuff that I've done and the rebellion that I've lived and the immorality that has been mine and it starts to come up and, and, and I can just start to, to, to weep in the place of that pain. And Jesus is saying, Rick, do you trust me? Yes, Lord, I trust you, but my sin is so, Rick, do you believe in me? Yes, Lord, I believe in you, but then there's no but. My blood has cleansed you and you are saved. Let's pray together. Father, this is, it's tough teaching. It's not the kind of thing we like to get up on a Sunday morning to hear. And yet, when we recognize how great your righteousness, how awesome your wrath, perhaps we can begin to understand how amazing is your grace. And I pray for that comprehension among us this morning to recognize how deep your love is for us, how vast your grace and how perfect your blood that you would cleanse us if we would but cry out the name of Jesus to be saved. If that's you this morning as I pray, I invite you to join me and to pray to the Lord and to ask him for your salvation because he is at the ready to give it. Just pray simply to me, Lord, I am a sinner. I am worthy of your wrath, and that's all. But I come pleading this morning the blood of Jesus Christ, who I now understand died for me, who took my place on the cross so that I could be saved. I repent, Lord, of my sin, and I turn to you today, and I pray, come into my life, be my Lord and my Savior forever and ever. In Jesus' name.